Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Hey, as I wind down the podcast, so I'm going to take a break after Griffin is done so I can focus on finishing writing the Gatekeeper series. I just want to remind you that my virtual guitar case is always open on coffee, K-O-F-I. If you have a spare toonie in your pocket, click explore and look for Krista Wallace is a writer. The link is in the episode description. One day years ago, I was in our little local music and video game store, flipping through the used CDs looking for some cool ones to buy. I was in the jazz section and came across a Kenny G CD. I said, what is Kenny G doing in the jazz section? Kenny G is not jazz. (laughs) And the store clerk said, hey, a lot of people like Kenny G. And I said, well, that's fine, but that that doesn't make him jazz. (laughs) So I don't care for Kenny G's music. I do get that a lot of people like his stuff, and that's all cool. The other night, I heard the beginning of an interview with him on the radio when I was in the car on my way home, and something he talked about struck me. So when he was starting out, he was still trying to sort out what his style was and what kind of music he wanted to play. And he kept getting pressure to use vocals because, oh, you know, the whole attitude of that's what people want. But that wasn't really what he wanted to play. Still, he was like, fine, and he had this song that had vocals, and then he got a slot on The Tonight Show. I mean, big time. And of course, his managers, or whomever, wanted him to play that song, the one with vocals, because that was the song they were trying to promote as his big hit. But he was struggling with that choice, and when it came time to play on the show, he was like, screw it, that's not what I want. And so he played his instrumental, which was Songbird, which, like it or not, launched his career. Why do I bring this up? Because it's about integrity as an artist, being true to yourself. And it can be pretty hard to say, no, that doesn't work for me. And not everybody is going to be launched into stardom by having integrity either. So how this applies to my own experience is that... And I assume that since you've come this far in the podcast, you're familiar with the Gatekeeper series. When I was shopping it around to agents and editors, and and of course, keep in mind that agents and editors are seeing like the first 10 pages, maybe the first chapter, maybe even as much as the first 50 pages of the book, but they stop reading as soon as they find a reason to, something that doesn't work for them. So the most common bit of criticism I received when being rejected was this. Your dialogue is too colloquial. Now, one of the things I never liked about the fantasy I was reading in my youth was what I think of as fantasy speak. When the characters take on this pseudo-formal, stylized way of speaking that sounds hoity-toity and not even a little bit natural. It was when I read Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman that I went, hey, he doesn't write like that, so why should I? And I don't even get it. Why tell me my dialogue is too colloquial? For what? I'm showing you my characters and my world. So why are people trying to tell me I need to write as if it's somebody else's characters in somebody else's world? 
So I said, screw it, that's not what I want. So I have written my story in my style. (laughs) I'm still waiting for the part where it launches my career. (laughs) But I'm really proud of my creation. I love my story and I love my dialogue. It makes me super happy that so many listeners have been in touch to let me know they're enjoying it too. So thank you so very much for that. This week's episode, well, one small moment in it, is dedicated to Dirk Van Stralen and Julia Mackey. Remember them from Chats with Cool Folk number two way back, like a year ago? It's dedicated to them because they contributed to it um, with one small idea that (laughs) came up at a dinner party and, and I decided to use it. You may recall, last week, Griffin stood up to Phoenix in the kitchen at Salamander's And Phoenix was startled when Mateo kissed her. Rickenbacker realized he had made a significant error in his instructions to the MDC by telling him to be everything that Griffin desires. Griffin and the Spurious Correlations by Krista Wallace Chapter 16, May 18th Friday, our final rehearsal before the gig. I was a bit of a rebel and didn't even go into the kitchen. Take that, Phoenix. As for the knife, I had stabbed it into a cantaloupe and put it in the fridge. There was very little doubt in my mind it would not stay there, but it had never appeared in the rehearsal studio. If I stayed out of the kitchen, there might be a chance of my not seeing it. The band sequestered ourselves in the studio and went through the entire three sets, paying particular attention to openings and endings, making sure they were tight as a duck's arse. We made a few changes to the order based on flow of energy as well as tempo and key signatures. All in all, it was terrific, and I was absolutely stoked about the gig. I thought I might even invite Calvin. I reminded the group I would be out of town the next day, but I'd be here in plenty of time on Sunday for the gig. I hope your day goes great tomorrow, Mateo smiled. Hey, listen, he said as I packed up. Here's a song I heard the other day and thought I'd like to learn it, not for this gig, but you know. He was so sweet when he blushed like that. The other three chatted quietly to each other in the corner. They never seemed to include themselves in anything but when we were actually practicing. Whatever. The song he played was a lightfoot tune. Beautiful. He had a voice like honey, and his guitar playing rivaled Bruce Coburn, well, or lightfoot. He'd like to learn it. It sure sounded to me like he'd already mastered it. I was so afraid to imagine he was singing that song for me. I just clenched my teeth and tried not to smile like an idiot. I had always loved the song. Its melody, hanging over chords that switched between major and minor, had a haunting quality. When Matteo finished playing, he strummed the last chord and swung his arm up the way he had the first time I ever heard him play. Then he didn't look at me, but waited for a reaction first. I didn't do anything so cliché as clap, but I said, Nice. Very nice. He looked up then, grinning. Thanks. It's for someone kind of special. I smiled back. They're going to be really pleased. Oh my God, did he mean me? My legs wanted nothing more than to jump up and down. I couldn't bring myself to believe it. He had sure given me all kinds of reasons to think I might be that special person, but I didn't want to assume anything. Matteo could have been singing about his mother, for all I knew. I was damn sure I wasn't going to ask. 
Still, on the way home, one of the happiest, jolliest songs ever played over and over in my mind. I bounced in my seat on the train, hearing Jeff Lynne's voice singing about the blue sky hiding away for a long time. I wanted to dance up and down the aisle of the train. I was that elated. As a result, I was a bit unprepared for the drunk who boarded the train and hollered obscenities at my fellow passengers. I didn't even notice him at first. I was so lost in my own world. When he grabbed a woman's purse and flung it at her, the song in my head changed to Crazy Train. Someone pressed the yellow strip under the window, and when the train pulled into the next station, some security people boarded and removed him. I had to jostle awkwardly with my guitars around a few people to disembark at my station, only to be greeted by two RCMP officers. "'Griffin Trowbridge?' the tall male one said. "'Um,' I said, "'Yeah? We understand you were on the train when the crazy drunk man boarded?' "'How irregular. Did cops always refer to perpetrators that way?' Yeah, I was, but he didn't talk to me. Fine, fine. We're here to drive you the rest of the way home to make sure you aren't accosted. But I wasn't accosted. I witnessed it, kind of, but I didn't have much to do with it. The shorter female officer spoke. Nevertheless, it is important to us that you remain safe. It wasn't that I objected to being driven home, nor to the concern of whomever had called the cops to insist I be protected, but I was pretty sure it was not standard procedure for police to escort someone home from the train when she's perfectly capable of taking the bus. I told them so. What about all the other people who take the train? I'm sure there is someone else who needs help right now. Listen, I take the bus all the time, and I'm totally cool doing that. You refuse our assistance, the tall officer said. Are you getting this, Walker? Yes, said Walker, who was apparently taking shorthand and writing down my every word. Then she leaned forward and peered at me and jotted down some notes. Looks flushed, somewhat excited. What? I looked around for whoever was playing this joke on me. I just got off the train. It was warm in there. I'm not flushed. As soon as I said the words, I recognized a weight in my pocket, and my hand followed it. Yes, indeedy, the knife had made its way into a prominent place again. Shit, if the cops asked me to empty my pockets, I was hooped. I slipped my hand out. So you're rejecting our offer of a ride up the hill? The tall one confirmed. Yes, I mean, thanks and all, but it's really not necessary. A bus came around the corner. There's my bus. Can I go now? I took a couple of tentative steps. Wait, Walker said. She finished writing, and it looked like sketching me. Then she looked up at her partner. Can she go now, Hendricks? Walker asked. My bus approached the stop, slowing down. It would stay for no more than a moment. My heart raced. Please? Hendricks glared at me through shrewd cop eyes. Finally, he nodded. Fine, but be careful. It's a jungle out there. Of course. I walked. Thanks. I had lost track of the number of times I'd muttered the words that was weird to myself over the last couple of weeks. With People Are Strange running vaguely through my head, I boarded the bus. It pulled away and carried me up the hill and past the park to my apartment. As soon as I turned my key in the lock, I knew something was wrong. My hair got to its feet, and an awful eddy of heebie-jeebies billowed up from my gut, through my chest, and restricted my throat. Isn't there some sort of medical condition that occurs when a person experiences too many abrupt changes in mood in a short period of time? Was it only 45 minutes ago I was bouncing around the train, figuratively speaking, to ELO because Mateo sang a song which might have been directed at me? 
and now I was at my own doorstep where it was clear someone had broken into my apartment. Peter Gabriel started singing about an intruder's skill at sneaking around someone else's home and where to find valuables. Damn it, where was that music coming from? Some of my furniture had been tipped over. Some of it had been moved around as if the intruder had experimented with redecorating my living room. My books were all over the floor in heaps, and the bookshelf had moved about three feet closer to the window. One framed print on the wall was busted, by which I mean both the glass of the frame and the print itself was split diagonally across. It was of Dune Castle in Scotland. Starry Night had been swapped with my grandmother's watercolor. Worse, half of my record collection was spread out on the floor, many of them looking like they'd been purposely folded in half. Leo Kotke had a crease down the center of his face, and Tuck and Patty had severed their relationship. I felt sick to my stomach. All the drawers in my living room and bedroom had been dumped out. Some of my decorative things were broken, a couple of vases, the clock on the wall by my dining table, a floor lamp, and... Oh, rats. My music box, shaped like a grand piano, which played Eau Claire de Lune. Ouch, that hurt. I failed at preventing tears from welling and overflowing. It had been a birthday present from Calvin. I looked through without touching, just to see if anything was conspicuously missing. I didn't own much of real value, only sentimental. My guitars were with me, which were the things I cared most about. I called the cops. Hi, I'd like to report a break-in. I gave her my name and address and answered all her questions and was told I'd have to wait just a little while and she'd send an officer. I thanked her and hung up. Then I poured myself a glass of wine. To my astonishment, yet not really, the officers at my door were my pals Walker and Hendricks. It will come as no surprise that they declared this wouldn't have happened if I'd accepted a ride from them. I didn't think it would be wise to tell them I doubted it, so I kept my mouth shut. Has anything been taken? I looked around me again. It's hard to tell. Nothing obvious. A few things have been wrecked, though. Like what? Walker was busy with her notebook again, sketching the scene. My clock, my music box, that picture. Wait a second. It's not broken. The picture of Dune was fine. I scratched my head. I thought that print was broken before. Walker and Hendricks looked at me doubtfully. Anything else? Hendricks said. Well, in here, I beckoned them to follow me into my room. See, all the drawers have been... Shit! Hendricks looked shocked. Please refrain from swearing, Walker cautioned. I apologized. But you see, when I got home, all this stuff had been dumped out all over. Hendricks leaned against the doorframe. Yes, I can see how disgracefully messy it is in here. You know you can't blame your own mess on a crime and expect the cops to come and clean it up for you. Walker was madly taking notes. I had a bad feeling about returning to the living room. Sure enough, although the furniture that had been switched around was still switched around, the books were back up on the shelves, and anything that had been broken or dumped was where it should be. Even the records were perfectly tidy. I pulled out Tuck and Patty, who had patched things up. The theme from Twilight Zone was loud and clear. For crying out loud, I muttered. You were in here a moment ago. You saw all the stuff lying broken on the carpet. The cops tossed frowns at each other. My guts roiled with rage. This sort of nonsense was getting tired. These cops were already so suspicious of me, I was in danger of being hauled away in a straitjacket. I had to remain calm. 
Look, I'm really sorry to have troubled you. This makes no sense. I swear upon my life. What did I tell you about swearing? I know! I half yelled and then instantly pulled myself together. I mean, I promised you the place was all messed up and wrecked when I walked in. I spread my arms out. I don't understand it. Well now, Hendricks said in a fatherly tone, you did have a rough time getting home. I would advise you to have a nice hot bath and relax. Seriously? This cop was telling me to have a freaking bath? I'm afraid I'm going to have to write you up for wasting police time. Walker scribbled furiously in her ticket book, or whatever it was. Now may I use your washroom? Sure, it's right down the hall. Meanwhile, I suggest you cut down on your drinking, young lady, Hendricks said. Do we need to call your parents? I snapped my jaw shut and unwrinkled my nose so he wouldn't guess how cross I was. Um, no, thank you very much, but I am 27 years old and I don't need anyone to tell on me to my folks. I'm sorry for wasting your time, but I guess I'm good now. Hendricks continued to scrutinize all my belongings, picking up each item and turning it over and setting it down. Several minutes passed before I noticed an unexpected sound. I made sure Hendricks wasn't paying attention to me and took a few surreptitious steps down the hall. Sure enough, that wasn't just the running water sound of Walker washing her hands in the sink. I returned to the living room where Hendricks was trying to balance a book on his head like a debutante. Is Walker taking a shower? I demanded. The book dropped off Hendricks's head onto the floor. Now look what you made me do. He picked it up and shook it at me like an extension of his index finger. What I had made him do? Why are you even doing that during a police investigation or whatever this is? Why is a police officer taking a shower in my apartment? Hendricks took several books off my shelf and started standing them up on end, setting them up like a domino track. Do you prefer people not to bathe in general? Well, no, but... I kept my mouth shut. No matter what I said, he would have an answer, and it would not help any of this make sense. I sat in my armchair and did not drink my wine, though it called to me to down it like a church bell summoning parishioners to worship. Eventually, Walker came back to the living room, clothed and, presumably, clean, towel-drying her hair. These towels are so soft and smell so fresh. I'm glad you... um like it. She dumped it on the floor and sketched it in her notebook like a piece of found art. Hendricks tipped the first book, which knocked the second, and when the whole row, about fifteen books, had fallen over, he yelled, Yes! and pumped his elbow like he'd scored the winning goal in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup final. The two cops left shortly thereafter. Walker had admired my little knick-knack of a tiny wooden doll on a swing, so I gave it to her. She cooed over it as they left. They're coming to take me away, blared through the ceiling. I looked up at it and frowned. I was pretty much sick of this craziness. Was I crazy? I mean, that picture had definitely been broken, and then it was suddenly not. I paced the floor. Somebody was toying with me. I didn't know who or how they were doing it, but somebody had it in for me. Where would it lead? Did this somebody have a goal in mind? I took a gulp of wine now that I wasn't being judged and set it down. I reached into my pocket. The knife twinkled in the light of the no longer broken lamp. All this has something to do with you, I told it. I don't know what it is or what you want from me, but you are in this. My cell phone rang. 
My hand shook as I reached for it. It said, unknown number. Hello? Silence. Hello? I demanded. I heard quiet breathing. The skin on my back crinkled. Click. My hand trembled so I had trouble pressing the hang-up button. Heedless of the cop's warning, I refilled my wine glass and took a few more turns around my apartment. I went back into my bedroom where most of the drawers had returned to their places. Had I been mistaken? I closed my eyes and counted to ten. I was being gaslighted by sources unknown. I turned to leave the room but stopped short. The crinkling of my skin spread up my neck. I set down my wine glass on the dresser and picked up my music box. My guitarist's calloused fingers slid over the wooden keyboard and inspected the tiny stick that held up the lid of the piano. Not a mark, not a scratch, not a single bit of evidence that mere moments ago the little instrument had been in pieces on the floor. I turned the key and fought back tears as the little plink-plink sounds replaced the disturbing stillness with Debussy. On the other hand, maybe the source of the gaslighting wasn't so unknown after all. I don't know how you're doing this, Phoenix, I said aloud, but I have just about had it. My breaths came short and shallow, and I was getting dizzy. My trembling fingers set the precious item back on the dresser. I took a moment to calm my breathing before returning to the living room. Seated in my favorite armchair, I didn't mind its new position on the other side of the room as it happened, I practiced Gotta Have You on my guitar until my cell phone pinged. There was a notification of two missed calls. What the heck? Calvin had left a message in the afternoon which said, All right, just letting you know I'm leaving to catch the ferry, so I'll see you at the wedding. Thanks again for doing this, Griffin. And one from my mother. Griffin, since I'll probably never see you again, I might as well tell you, the business barely has enough to replace my stock. I'm low on everything, and I probably won't make it through the summer. All your little jet-setter friends from the Snifter wedding have done their best to ruin me. I'm sure you're not quite satisfied with abandoning... I heard my father's voice in the background. Adele, is that Griffin? Mom's hand covering the receiver as she stage whispered, She needs to know the damage she's done to my poor nerves. Then back at me, Well, think of your family on Sunday nights at least. A pause during which I was pretty sure I heard a forced sob. Goodbye, darling. While running over my schedule for Saturday, I sipped my wine. I didn't know how much more of this I could take. I was now really wishing I had told Brian I couldn't teach Colin's students this week. He would have understood. I had been too ambitious, trying to please too many people. This would have been an easy fix, but it was too late now. Thank goodness I had booked a co-op car again. That would make things a lot easier. It occurred to me then to go print off my plane ticket and boarding pass, one less thing to do in the morning. I would be staying overnight in Victoria, so I packed my little backpack with pajamas and a change of clothes for Sunday. I would wear my outfit for the wedding on the plane to save time. Hanging up with Calvin and his family at the reception and so forth would be a good time. Then I'd come home late Sunday morning. It would give me a chance to sleep in, and I would still get home in plenty of time for the spurious correlations gig in the evening. Everything was working out perfectly. Ah, yes, quite perfectly. That chapter was shorter than I expected. Oh, well, it's a setup for 
the onslaught of the last few chapters. We have just three chapters left, and they're pretty intense. Tune in next week when Griffin says, I'm in a bit of a hurry. Another criticism I heard about Gatekeeper's Key is chapter two, where they have the meeting in the woods. Um, I've been told it's been done before. Um, I don't deny that. Uh, I use some other tropes that have also been done before. I would say there are a lot of things that have been done before that I have not done, such as the protagonist being an orphan, or magic is forbidden, or a girl is being married off against her will, or the prophecy. I mean, there are lots of them, and some are used well, but others are just overused. Uh, So... I actually gave a lot of thought to that uh, scene in chapter two and decided that, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to leave it the way it is. That scene did what I needed it to do. Now, don't get me wrong. It sounds like I'm complaining about criticism, and that's not the case. Over the years of writing the story and having it critiqued by writing partners and so forth, I've made tons of changes on their recommendations. I even tweaked as I recorded the podcast. But at some point, I needed to decide which parts of the story matter enough to the story and to try to execute them in a way that works, that is true to the story and doesn't come across as tired. (laughs) I'm pretty sure Griffin doesn't have any of those tropes. (laughs) So thank you to my family, Matt, David and Heather and Maggie. I couldn't do any of this without you. Cheers, David and Sharon. Thanks, Phil, for a rockin' guitar solo, and thanks to you for listening. Now, go be fantastic.